Scott Granger, come up this way, would you? Scott's one of our elders. I'm going to ask Scott to lead us in a time of prayer, and then we're going to open our Bibles. And I hope you will do that this morning. I do hope you will open your Bibles. We're going to be in the book 2 Kings, chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and head that direction. Scott, lead us. Father, what a privilege it is to come before you and pray for a congregation and for this message about to be preached. And we just thank you, Lord, for for your word that we can glean wisdom and comfort from and, and healing and just ask God to open our hearts and prepare them for the message and that we can glean some of that healing, comfort, and wisdom from your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. I want to introduce you this morning to a fellow named Ben Wanderhope. Odds are you've never heard his story before. It's a good one. Just listen. Ben was a single dad to a teenage daughter named Carol. That's a difficult job under the best of circumstances, but Ben didn't have the best of circumstances. What he had was a huge challenge. Because you see, Carol had leukemia, a very aggressive form of leukemia. They'd gone in and out of doctor's offices and hospitals since she was first diagnosed, and they never did find much encouragement. And at one particular point in time, the diagnosis was raging, the leukemia was raging, and he had to check her into the hospital, and it didn't look good for Carol, didn't look good at all. He sat beside her like any dad would as long as he could. He listened to the doctors as they would come into the room and tell him what was going on, and Finally, in a moment of desperation, Ben said, I can't stay here any longer. So he got up and walked out. He didn't know where he was going. He just needed some fresh air. He needed a fresh perspective. He just needed something. He wasn't sure what, but he knew he needed something. So he went for a walk outside the hospital, up and down the sidewalks in front of that place. Finally arrived at an old church where the doors were unlocked. He walked through them and went to the front of the sanctuary and took a seat, just sat down on the front pew and he began to pray, asking the Lord for all kinds of different things. In the midst of his prayer, he offered these words, Lord, I am not asking that you spare her to me, but I am asking that you spare her to her, or at the very least, give us one more year. He went on to say, if you will do that for us, we will make this next year just like this past year. We won't leave a moment undone. We will do everything we can. Then with a a very introspective closing, he finished his prayer like this. We offer this in Jesus' name with the remission of our sins. Amen. He sat in the church a while longer and then got up and went back to the hospital fully expecting at this point that God would either respond to his prayer or it would be over. When he walked into the room, he was, to his own admission, very surprised, shocked even. The doctors met him at the door and said that while he had been gone, they got the results of some tests back and Carol was now in remission. Her cancer was, for all intents and purposes, gone. He was amazed. He had just asked the Lord for that very thing, and God had responded. He was shocked. He was shaken. He was pleasantly surprised. He was thrilled and was celebrating with his daughter and with the nurses and the doctors at this miracle that God had brought to them. 
the midst of that celebration, another doctor came in with a very long face and said to Ben, I hate to do this to you, but we have some very bad news. Inasmuch as her cancer had gone into remission, she had contracted an infection that was ravaging the hospital at that time. It was equally very aggressive. Ben didn't know what was going to happen, but at the end of the day, he found himself shaken like he had never been shaken before. Because you see, that infection took the life of his daughter in less than 24 hours. Healed from the cancer, she dies of an infection. Ben says that her body at the end of the day looked like a bird that had been ravaged by a storm and thrown to the earth. Her face reflecting terrible pain. He didn't want to look underneath the sheet because he was positive that her body would have looked pummeled as well. He was angry. He was upset. Anybody would have been. He didn't know what to do. He couldn't go home. There was no way he could do that. It would be too quiet in the house. He had no one else to call. He was alone now that Carol was gone. So he just walked outside the hospital and chose to go back to the church that he'd been at that morning. Ben walked back in through those same open doors, went up to the front of the auditorium to the front pew where he had spent those moments earlier that day and He saw sitting on the pew a cake that he had purchased. He'd totally forgotten about it. He'd walked out of the church leaving it there. His intention when he bought it was to take it back to the hospital to celebrate the answer to his prayer with Carol and the nurses and the doctors. But he had left the cake in the church. He didn't sit down on the front pew this time. Instead, he just picked the cake up and held it in his hand. And he walked around the front of the church staring at that cake and everything that it represented. As he was on his way out of the building, he noticed that there was a crucifix hanging on the wall of the church. He walked over in front of that crucifix, holding that cake balanced perfectly in his hand. And As he stared up at the crucifix, which if you don't know the difference between a cross and a crucifix, this is a cross, a crucifix is a cross that still has Jesus on it. He stood at the base of that crucifix looking at Jesus and then looking back down at the cake and then looking back at Jesus and back down at the cake. Then he decided that he would hurl that cake as fast and as hard as he could right at that crucifix. And his aim was spot on. When he threw it as hard as he could, it hit Jesus right in the face. That was what he intended to do. After that was over, he was completely spent. He thought, well, I have to go somewhere. I can't stay here, but I have nowhere to go. I can't go home like he'd already determined it would be too quiet in the house. He had nowhere to go, and that emotion began to well up inside of him as he was trying to make his way out of the church, and he had to step down a few stairs just like this. And by the time he got to the bottom of the stairs, everything was drained out of him, and he had no choice but to just sit down, just sit down. It was the only thing he could do. When he sat down at the top of the stairs, he put his head into his hands and and thought to himself thoughts that would become a prayer. That prayer would sound like this. Lord, I have worked too hard. I have prayed too helplessly. And I have hoped too pointlessly to be in this place. I don't know what to do. I have no idea where to go. How could you do this to me? How could you answer my prayer and then take her in the very next moment? How could this happen? Ben was at a complete loss. As he was laying all the details out before the Lord, he was simply laying his heart before God. 
I don't want you to be too mad at me, but that's actually not a true story. Ben Wonderhope's story comes from Peter DeVry's wonderful book called The Blood of the Lamb. I have no hard numbers on this, but I would venture a guess that a number of strong Christians, not people like Ben who had a a crisis of faith in their life, but people who had a strong faith, a, a solid faith, have felt at different times in their walk with the Lord like hurling a cake at him in frustration saying, this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't respond to me like this or not respond to me like this. That type of emotion gets leveled at God on a regular basis. Or at least, listen to this, it should. There's a lot of folks who believe that in relationship with the Lord, there is no place for us to express being upset with God. There is no place for us to lay everything before the Lord like Ben did. There is no place for us in our relationship with him to be that honest and that transparent. But there is another group of people, and I am counted among them, that believes there is a place for that. That it is all right for us to be that expressive with God. It is all right for us to be that transparent with the Lord so that God can respond to us the ways that he needs to. The reason I believe that is I've read the Psalms. Have you ever read the Psalms? They are packed full of people that are expressing a number of different emotions before God. Some good, some bad. Some that come out of wonderful blessing and some that come from deep challenges. They're very open with the emotional side of their walk with the Lord and they should be. I like the way John Calvin describes the Psalms. Take a look at this. I have been accustomed to call this book, speaking of the Psalms, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men or want to be agitated. That's the way the Psalms read. We can add our own to David and Moses as they write transparently how they're feeling at any given moment. They've placed those words there for us that we might learn from the pattern that they have set. It is all right. It is all right for you to be upset with God. His shoulders are big enough. His heart is big enough. He can take it. And if you're willing to express it, he can help you. Now, let me take you out of the realm of fiction from Ben Wonderhope's story and jump right into the Bible, and I'll show you a real-life account of someone that has done that very thing. And what you'll see in the middle of all of it is not only his emotion, but God's response. It's a pretty cool story. Man's name is Naaman, and his account is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 5. Why don't you join me in verse 1? We're going to pick this passage apart as we go through it. So I'm going to read a little bit, then I'm going to stop, and then I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to stop. I want you to see it as if under a microscope. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. 
but, and that little word, three-letter word, but, is incredibly telling. But he was a leper. Now let's figure out who Naaman really is. First and foremost, you have to understand that he is not a God-fearer. He is not a worshiper of the Lord. He is not living in the Holy Lands. He's living next to him in the nation of Syria. There is no reason in the face of the earth that he should be a believer. He is living outside of covenant. He is not a Jew. He is, in fact, an enemy of God the leader, the commander of the army of the Syrians. He was responsible for bringing their army on raids into the Holy Lands. He was responsible for carrying out the wishes of the king of Syria, a man named Ben-Hadad. He was responsible for carrying out Ben-Hadad's commands. He was very good at it. He was a powerful warrior, a mighty man of valor, the Bible calls him. Now, the truly interesting thing is this. As a Gentile, he still lived under the blessing of God. He was not a Jew. He did not have the favor of the Lord from a heritage standpoint. But for some reason, the Bible would say that favor rested on him because God led him into great victories. Ben-Hadad, of course, wanted him to be healed. Ben-Hadad, of course, wanted to keep him around. He was the number two man in all of Syria. As the commander of the army, he was a dignitary. He was a man of great power and prominent position. That's who Naaman was. But he was a leper. And that leprosy set at the crux of all of his problems. Now here's a little detail that you also have to know about him. Not only was he not a friend of Israel, he was an enemy of God, but he was also a kidnapper. When they would go into the Holy Lands on these raids, it was not uncommon for the Syrians or the Babylonians or anybody else to steal the Jews and take them back to their homeland and make them slaves. Naaman was one of them. He was one who captured the people of Israel and enslaved them. Interestingly, he enslaved a young girl and made her go to work in his house. But God worked through her. Listen to this, verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, that means King Ben-Hadad, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So this slave girl says to Naaman's wife, if Naaman would just go to my homeland, if he would just go back to Israel, there is a prophet there that could heal him. You can bet the farm that Naaman had been to every doctor in the land, not only the land of Syria, but all of the surrounding lands. He had tried everything. No matter what any doctor would have said to him, he was willing to try it because leprosy was a disease that killed But before it killed, it cut off. According to the law of the Bible, as well as the law of the land, if a person had leprosy, they were to be put outside the city gates and left there to fend for themselves until they died a gruesome death. Because leprosy was highly communicable. It was a a disease that would spread rampantly. And no king, no leader of the people wanted to have a person with leprosy in a major area of population. So they would isolate them and send them out. 
Now, Naaman seemed to have a special pass, if you will, from Ben-Hadad because he was a mighty man of valor and he had led these great conquests and the military would respect him and go with him wherever he wanted to go. But Ben-Hadad, by implication, would be very terrified of, number one, losing him to death or, number two, losing his army to fear when they were no longer willing to follow him because his leprosy had gotten too bad. So when he came with an option from this little slave girl in his house that said, if you were to go back to Israel, there's a prophet there that could do something to help you. Of course, Naaman wanted to go, and of course, Ben-Hadad wanted him to go. The problem is, Ben-Hadad was not friendly with Israel. Joram is the king of Israel during this time. Ben-Hadad and Joram were not on a first-name basis. They weren't talking with each other regularly. They weren't sitting down and sharing a cup of coffee and saying, hey, how's it going in your kingdom? I'll tell you how it's going in my kingdom. They hated each other. So he had to write a letter to him, Ben-Hadad did, to Joram, so that when Naaman showed up there, he wouldn't kill him. He wouldn't run him out of there. He needed his help. Isn't that a cool little detail? The king of Syria needed help from the king of Israel. Tiny little detail, but boy, what a, what a gift he was asking for. Pay attention to what happens. Joram is not friendly to this idea. Picking up at the last half of verse 5. So he went, meaning Naaman, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now that little portion of verse 5 shows us that Ben-Hadad and Naaman, neither one understood who God was. Because when they were going to ask a favor of the Lord, of the prophet, they thought they could buy it. That's why they sent all of this money, all of these clothes. Their intention was to try to pay for the miracle. Friends, you don't pay for miracles. You can't pay for miracles. The grace of God is not for sale. They had no idea who Jehovah God was. And it is evident from just half of a verse. This is what Joram does. Verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Joram wisely said, I don't have the ability to pull this off. There's no way that I can do this. Who in the world does Ben-Hadad think I am? Does he think that I'm God, that I have the ability to heal this man? And by the way, I know who this man is. This is Naaman, the leader of his army, the commander of all of his army. This is the man who is second in command in all of Syria, and he sends him to me to heal him? What in the world am I supposed to do? I can't grant his request. So he calls his advisors in and says, the only thing that I can figure, and this is probably a fit of wisdom right here, the only thing that I can figure is Ben-Hadad sent us a declaration of war and he's trying to pick a fight with us because I can't do what he wants me to do. There's no way that I can. He is distraught, beside himself, wondering how he's supposed to respond to this. And then God shows up. And God shows up in a big way through the prophet Elisha. 
when God shows up like this and performs a public miracle, you must know that he always does it for the greatest impact. And the greatest impact is always going to be to bring glory to himself. That's why God shows up the way he does. That's why we have the account of Naaman in the Bible. That's why Elisha does what he does. Now, as we get into this part of the story, I want you to listen really close. Pay very close attention to how all this plays out. Because the details of it set the stage for the response of Naaman. Here we go. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. So, Elisha is fully aware of the fact that Joram is in the middle of a personal as well as a political crisis. And he says, don't worry about it, Joram. I can help. Send Naaman my way. We have to ask this question. How does Elisha even know this? You know that Joram is asking that question. How does Elisha even know what's going on? How does he know who Naaman is? How does he have these details? Well, Lord told him. That's how he knew. And that had to have upset Joram right from the outset. Because Joram and Elisha were not friendly either. In fact, there was a lot of stress and strife between the two of them. So for Elisha to know what was going on in the courts of Joram had to have ticked Joram off. But he had a problem. If he sends him back without doing anything, he's going to war. If he doesn't respond, things are not going to go well for his country. So he tells Naaman to go to Elisha. Now, these are the details that I hope you caught. Naaman gets back on his horse, and he leads all the other animals that he has with him, horses, mules, donkeys, whatever it is, that's carrying all of these riches and all of these changes of clothes. He gets back on his horse, and he leads all of them, along with all of the other people with him, from the palace of the king to the home of Elisha. When he gets there, he gets off of his horse, knocks on Elisha's door, and Elisha is apparently laying on the couch and has absolutely no desire to get up. So he sends his servant to the door to tell Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River. That is a detail you must not look past. It sets the stage for everything else that is going to happen. Elisha says, ah, All right, Naaman's here. He is not worth my time. Remember, he is a foreign dignitary, number two in the nation of Syria, an enemy of Israel sent there by the king. And Elisha says, yeah, I don't need to look at him face to face. I'm just going to send my servant to the door to tell him what to do. That's how the whole thing plays out. If you are a foreign dignitary, if you are a politician of this magnitude, and all you get is a servant cracking open the door saying, Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed, and closes the door and walks the other way, how are you going to feel? Not good. Not good at all. And Naaman doesn't feel good. In fact, watch his response. We're going to pick up in verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. In a rage. Now that rage was fueled by the fact that Elisha didn't even bother himself to get off the couch. And then it was added to when he said, I want you to go to the Jordan River. Now here's some perspective for you so that you can keep all of this in mind. When he rode from Damascus into Samaria, it was roughly a hundred mile journey. Not a big deal, roughly a hundred miles. But now Elisha is telling him to ride 32 more miles and go to the Jordan River. So he's going to be 132 miles away from home and deep into enemy territory when Elisha says, you go wash in the Jordan. You have to understand that the Jordan River then, as well as today, is not a beautiful piece of water. It is not flowing clear. You don't stand on the edge of it and look and see the bottom. There's trash floating in the Jordan River. There's places where it is nothing more than a trickle. During the flood season, it gets very large, but it is ugly, muddy water. Now, I know that that's shocking to some of you because you think, well, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River. Well, true enough. That's the main source of water that flows through the Holy Lands, but it's ugly. It's terrible, ugly. Here's some perspective for you. I want you to imagine that Naaman had ridden from Idaho to Libby and he was standing on the banks of the Kootenai River when Elisha says, I want you to go over to Haver and dip yourself in the Milk River seven times. Now, you could have this beautiful, clear water of the Kootenai and get yourself in there seven times, but that's not going to work. I want you to go to the snake-infested, ugly, nasty, muddy water of the milk and dip yourself in there seven times. And Naaman's saying, are you joking me? I could go back home and pass two other rivers that are better than that nasty thing. Why would he do this? So he's angry. Elisha didn't even bother to come see him face to face. And then he tells him to go dip himself seven times in some of the ugliest water in all of the land. Why would he do that? He just gets furious, furious, furious. It's interesting how that happens. At this very moment, he has a cake in his hand and he is ready to fling it at Elisha if Elisha would just open the door. And when he threw it at Elisha, his hope would be that the cake would actually land in the face of God. That's how he's feeling about this right now. I have been wrestling with this disease all these years. I have been fighting this all of my life. It is going to kill me, and if it doesn't kill me, it's going to rob me of my purpose, and you can't even get off the couch and come talk to me, and then you say, go wash in the Jordan River. No way. I'm not going to do it. So Naaman says, he could have come out here, he could have waved his hand, and he could have healed me. Why do I have to do this? Why? Why do I have to do this? I have seen a lot of people through the years feel exactly like that when they come to the issue of baptism. Which, by the way, Naaman's story is used as a a beautiful Old Testament description of New Testament baptism and the grace that comes through that. That's a a lot of what is recorded here. People will say, I I understand that I need to be baptized, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Therefore, I'm not going to be. I don't want to be. Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 is a question offered in response to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. People said, after hearing that sermon, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, two things, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, when he made that statement, people will listen to it and they'll say, okay, I get that I need to repent of my sins, but baptism doesn't make sense to me, so I don't want to be baptized without realizing that the work of God that happens in baptism is a miraculous thing and they need to be baptized because God said do it. But they say, I don't want to be baptized because my hair is going to get wet or it might be a little embarrassing to come out of that water and stand in front of everybody and there'll be a large crowd looking at me and that just doesn't make sense to me. Well, here's my response. No, it doesn't make sense, but do it. Because God said, do it. Why would you question it? Do it. If God says, do it, do it. It's an interesting thing that that exact same comment is made by a servant of Naaman's. Pick up with me in his story again. This is verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Now listen, verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Because his servant said, just do it. And he did. It was this promise that was put in front of him, whether it made sense or not, whether it was offensive to him or not, whether his pride was damaged or not, didn't matter. His servant said, if you could be healed of your leprosy by doing this, why wouldn't you? You've done all these other things. Why wouldn't you do this? The man of God and there is history and what he has done has said, do it. So do it. And he did. Seven times. And he was healed. He was healed. That's the way the things of the Lord work. That's how God does things for us. And when we pay attention to him, unbelievable, miraculous things happen. God does private miracles and public miracles that allow us to put the cake down and stop feeling like we want to throw it at God and we get to live in the blessings of God. Isn't that a cool story? It really is. That's Naaman's story. Isn't that a cool story? It is, but not for everyone. You see, in the New Testament, there's a group of people that don't see Naaman's story as a cool one. I want to show it to you this morning. This is the only other passage we're going to today. So keep your finger in 2 Kings 5, but go with me to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 16. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. The prophet Elijah is always seen as the tip of the spear of the prophets. Elisha, I told you a few weeks ago when we started this study, actually received a double portion of Elijah's spirit and performed, as well as it's recorded in Scripture, at least twice as many miracles as Elijah. So he did double what Elijah did. But by the time we get to the New Testament and even through the Old Testament, Elisha is seldom ever seen because he lives in the shadow of Elijah. In the New Testament, Elijah is mentioned 29 times. Elisha once. And the one time that Elisha is mentioned, it is not positive. And I want to show it to you. It's connected to Naaman's story. Verse 16 of chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. By the way, that synagogue in Nazareth is still there. It's one of the neatest places in that city to go to. It is the place that Jesus stood and read from the scrolls of Isaiah. I loved being there. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He just declared, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've waited for. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Their primary emotion at this point, they're amazed. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who was prophesied. He's the one that we've waited for. Listen to what he just read from Isaiah. And he said, I'm the one. They were amazed. But look how quickly things can change. Verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, you did here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up. Three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers, this is where Elisha comes on the scene, in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now they're angry. They were marveling at him, and now they're angry because he mentioned the widow of Zarephath and he mentioned Naaman, two people that did not live under the covenant of Judaism with God that had received the grace of God. And these Jews said, we're not going to hear about that. Gentiles don't have a place in the kingdom. Gentiles don't have a place in grace. Gentiles shouldn't receive miracles like this from the Lord. And they're furious. They're furious. Naaman's cool story in the Old Testament is not seen that way by these New Testament new believers. They saw it as wrong. They were upset by it. But we don't have to be. Because you see, we can not only learn New Testament grace from an Old Testament story, we can find ourselves in the midst of Naaman's story. Because you see, whether we realize it or not, we all bring emotions to the Lord. We bring emotions to everything we do. Emotions flow very naturally out of all of us. They are the expression of what's going on in our hearts. They are, if you will, the reflexes of the soul. And you can try to hide your emotions, but the truth is you can't. You may be able to corral them for a little while, but you can't control them. You can't hide them. They're there, and they're coming out of you very naturally. Let me just show you how that works. Something good happens in your life. You experience great joy. Somebody does something very nice for you and you experience gratitude. Joy and gratitude are your emotions. Those are good ones. You can flip the nickel over and see other sides of emotions as well. Somebody betrays you and you feel anger. Somebody close to you dies and and you feel sorrow. You're in the, the face of huge tragedy and fear wells up within you. All of those are emotions. Every one of those, anger, anger is an emotion, sorrow is an emotion, fear is an emotion. They flow out of us. 
giving insight into what's going on in our lives. And oftentimes, they'll flow into the relationships around us. One of the great things about the marriage relationship is having somebody in your life that knows you so intimately that they know how you feel about everything. They can see it in your face. They can hear it in your voice. They can just look at what's going on in your life and know how you're feeling about it. That's one of the cool things about intimacy within marriage is having somebody like that. Well, we have that same relationship with God. He knows exactly what our emotions are. Why would we try to hide them from Him rather than expressing them to Him and before Him? There are a myriad of unhealthy ways that people deal with their emotions towards God. One of those is through suppression. Something happens or doesn't happen in your life that you believe should have. God should do something the way you think he should do it, and he doesn't. So you suppress all of the emotions that you have. It's like putting a cork on a pressure cooker. It's going to explode at some point. Just this past week, I don't know if if you have been watching this, but there was one of the panel members from a ridiculous TV show called The View that decided to spew all kinds of emotions about Mike Pence, our vice president, and the fact that he is a Christian. She actually made statements like this because Pence said that he hears from God what he is supposed to do. This lady on The View, and I believe NBC carries this, this lady said he must be mentally ill. And there's been a backlash because of what she said. And Christians have stood up and said, this is horrible that she is actually allowed to say these things. And they want NBC to fire her. And and personally, here you go, you can just have this for whatever it's worth. I think they're right. She ought to be fired. Because if she had said that about anybody else, she would have been. This is this new pattern called Christian shaming. And people believe that they can say whatever they want against Christians, though they would never say anything against another group of people. Well, she was Christian shaming Mike Pence, which thankfully he has a lot thicker skin than to be bothered by what this lady had to say, and he doesn't care much about it. Well, I have listened and read all kinds of comments of what people have had to say, and I have agreed with a number of them, disagreed with others, by the way. But at the the heart of the whole discussion, I have wondered what's happened in this woman's life. And I've spent some time speculating about it because she says this. These are words right from her own mouth. I'm a believer and have been for a long time. And I talk to God, but it's ridiculous to believe that God would talk back. So in the realm of of speculation, and that's all this is. I've never met her, never talked to her, and doubt I ever will. So this is just my speculation, and I could be 100% wrong. I think at some point in her life, she had asked God for something and it didn't happen. Or God told her that she needed to do something a certain way because she calls herself a believer and says she talks to God but expects nothing back. She is suppressing all of her emotions and it explodes just like it did this last week. Now, there's other ways that we can deal with our emotions towards God in unhealthy ways, just like we do in other relationships. We can lash out at innocent bystanders. If we're upset with God, we can lash out at other people and let all of that anger, all of that emotion land on them. It's like the proverbial kicking of the dog. I'm upset with God, but I'm taking it out on the dog. Same thing happens for parents of teenagers. You know how this works. Your kids get upset with a friend at school, but they don't want to risk losing the friendship, so they take all of their emotion out on you. Same thing. We do it with the Lord, too. We lash out at innocent bystanders because of other things that are happening in our life instead of dealing with the one that we need to deal with. 
Or there's other people that in an unhealthy way will take all of the emotion that they have, all of their upsetness, if you will, and they will turn it inward. And they will get into a process of self-loathing, believing that it's all their fault that things didn't work out the way they thought they should or they didn't work out the way it's worked out for other people. That's the birthplace of shame. It takes years and years and years to unpack those bags. It really does. But then there's this healthy pattern that we find with Naaman where we vent our anger and our frustration and our emotions on God and we allow God to deal with them either through his presence or his power. Either one. We win either way. God shows up and goes through life with us or he shows up and changes the circumstance of our life. It's a win-win all the way around. And it allows us to put the cake down. Instead of feeling like we need to hurl it at God, we can just lay it down and experience what God has in store for us, which is relationship. But we have to put the cake down. We have to be willing to say, Lord, I I trust. I trust. No matter what's happening, I trust. I trust your presence. I pray for your power. I trust your presence. When we do that, the relationship is solid. That's what Naaman did. You saw it just like I did. He was healed. The curse was lifted off of him because he submitted to God. Back in 2 Kings chapter 5, that's what happened. He submitted to God and the curse of death was lifted off of him. We're going to stop in 2 Kings 5 right at that point. There is more for us to see from Naaman's story. And we're going to see that next week. Two details that often get overlooked and they shouldn't. Most people when they're teaching Naaman's story stop right at this point. I want us to keep going and we're going to next week. But as we wrap this up today, here's what I want you to know. Naaman's story, Old Testament story, is a beautiful picture of New Testament grace. It really is. Not just the baptism side of it, but the whole aspect of it. That when we are willing to submit to God, he lifts the curse of death off of us. Now, we're not necessarily cursed with leprosy the way Naaman was, a physical death. But we do live under the curse of death that comes through sin. And the only way to be healed of it, the only way to have it lifted off of us is by God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, through grace. That's the message of Naaman's life. It is grace, New Testament grace, where God heals us and restores life, not just for this world, but eternal life. It's a wonderful story, wonderful story that we might miss if we didn't really get into it and explore it for what it has to offer. And what you're going to see next week are two responses to it. They are powerful, incredibly powerful. One positive, one negative, and I'll show them to you next Sunday. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, I'm glad that we have stories like Naaman's in Scripture. They can seem harsh. They can seem distant. can seem like there's no application for us. When in reality, they can be harsh, but they're not distant. And there is a lot of application. In this particular story, there's the application of grace. 
I am so thankful for that. Praying, Lord, for those that have experienced it, that they'll see themselves in Naaman's story and find a way to tell their own. Praying for those that haven't, that they'll look at themselves and see the curse of death, the leprosy that governs everything. Even in the midst of the good aspects of their life, it's still there. That's the power of the word but in Naaman's story. Lord, we all have that. We all have that aspect within us until we surrender to you. So I pray you'll help people see it. And then I pray you'll help them see you. Just like Naaman's servant would tell him, if this promise is available for you, won't you do it? I pray, Lord, that we'll all see those promises and do what needs to be done. So thank you, Lord, for this story. And thank you for these next few moments. They're yours, inspired by you and fueled by you. I pray that you'll use them. In Jesus' name, amen.